guy's not humble. The pride crept in, right? There he goes out the window. I'm not going to listen to anything he says anymore. No, it's good to be here. Good to be here with you. Pastor Tony and Pastor Joe were fantastic in helping us set up the conference, and we were thrilled to be able to come to you and to just speak about how we got our Bible, inerrancy, inspiration, you know, how we got our English Bible, how do we recognize the inspired books, the canon of Scripture, and how you know you can trust the Bible, the reliability of the text. So good to be with you. Greetings from Veritas International University. Many of you, maybe some of you have been to one of our conferences. I'm not sure. How many of you have been to a conference of ours? Uh, We've been doing these for the last 10 years. A few of you, I see. Um, We are based on the corner of MacArthur and Fairview in Santa Ana. We're on the second floor of the Logos building. Uh, Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa is just right there on the corner. That's where our main campus is. That's where we hold all of our courses and graduation and so forth. So, Uh, you're not that far. You know, it'd be great to see you in some of these courses. And we offer bachelor's degrees all the way up to PhDs. In fact, we just added uh, four new degree programs, one of which is an MA and a PhD in archaeology and biblical history. I mean, that is adventurous. Some of you adventure people out there would love to probably get in the dirt and start digging up history. And I say that because Veritas is jointly digging up the city of Sodom. We are currently in our 14th season with Trinity Southwest University and Dr. Stephen Collins, who's the director of our archaeology programs, and we are finding all kinds of great stuff in the sand. It is just amazing. It's right off the northeastern shores of the Dead Sea. It goes by the name Tal El Hammam, our dig site. We have found all kinds of destruction layers, three feet thick of destruction layer. And the layer of destruction is just churned. And guess what, guys? Do you think there's any indications of high heat in the area? Yes, there is. Just like Genesis 19 says that uh, God did destroy that city with fire uh, because of the immoral lifestyles that were going on there. So we have uh, unearthed all kinds of pottery and signet rings and artifacts that correspond to the scripture. And you might have guessed it. Yes, it's perfectly consistent with what we read about in the book of Genesis. It is just an amazing dig. So if you would like to take more courses, VIU, you can go to ves.edu. That is our school website. You don't even have to be in it for a degree. We have personal enrichment courses. We have all kinds of audit courses, uh, or you can take one course or as many as you want, or you can go for a full degree. So that's who we are. Uh, I'm the president, Joe Holden, and we have some of our staff and faculty here. Faculty will be presenting today, and some of our staff out there at the table, Debbie, Delia, and Frank, and and Alejandro uh, Sosa. So we are just thrilled to be with you today. And a little bit about the scroll you see in front here. This scroll is called the, the Veritas Torah, the Veritas Torah. It was donated to our school about four or five years ago by some generous donors who went to Israel and purchased this that we might be able to use it in our bibliology courses and our Hebrew courses. This is a Torah. That means it's Genesis through Deuteronomy, all contained here. If we were to roll it all the way out, it would be 106 feet long. It would be just enormous. But it's just the first five books written in Hebrew language, and it's written on calfskin. 
It's written on cowskin. This is a real manuscript here. Um, it's about 500 years old. It was penned originally in Germany by Ashkenazi Jewish scribes. Remember, if they're German Jews, if they're German Jewish scribes, they're called Ashkenazi. And so they penned this in the 1500s. It went to the Netherlands, uh, and then it made its way to Israel and from Israel uh, to our institution at VIU. So you're more than welcome to come up and, and even handle it. You can touch it. You can feel the, the paper. We just ask that you don't touch the font, the writing. Uh, to me, that writing looks like it was just printed out of a laser jet printer. I mean, it is that well preserved. And it's another testimony as to God preserving our word. Just amazing. I mean, that English Bible that you have in your hand today, it just didn't get there overnight. People lost their lives because of the English Bible. People translated the English Bible. People distributed it. They smuggled it. They, they made sure that the people, especially in Europe at the time when it was done, had the Bible in their hands. And so we are the great benefactors of this long tradition of translation and transmission of the scriptures into our hands today. But it did come at a cost. And that's what I want to talk to you about today, how we got our English Bible how we got our English Bible. It was a long road. It wasn't just overnight, as I said. It started way back, even at the beginning of the origin of scriptures. So the Old Testament and the New Testament, we know, was written over about a 1,500-year period, from about 1450 to about 100 AD. We had both Old and New Testaments. In fact, Job may even go back earlier. That might even go back into the 1700s B.C., But it all started with putting pen and paper together, with God breathing out his word through the human writers. And that all started hundreds and hundreds of years ago. So your English Bible is the culmination of this long journey from the dusty deserts of the Middle East to you in these modern cities today. And so many people have uh, gone through so much pain in order to give it to us. So much hiding, so much smuggling, so much trial and tribulation just to give us a Bible that we can read today. But then after the originals were, were, were penned, the transmission of the text then took over. And what is the transmission of the text of the originals? It's the copying process. To transmit the Bible means you're copying the manuscripts over and over and over since they didn't have a copy machine. They couldn't just push start and all of a sudden all these copies just start churning out of the end of the machine, okay? This was done by hand, and it's called manual script. That's why we call them manuscripts, because it was done by hand in a manual fashion. But this transmission took, you know, 2,000 years to get to us. And the first period of Old Testament transmission was called the Talmudic period. This is a Jewish-Hebrew period. It was decidedly Jewish, They took the text from the 5th century B.C. to about the 5th century A.D. That's about a thousand years. They took the Talmudic text and they copied it over and over and over. And do you think that they had zealously copied? Do you think that they remembered every jot in detail? Do you think they had a stake in keeping the word of God correct over these centuries? Well, they sure did. In fact, if a king walked into a room and the scribe was still writing the name of God, that scribe would have to say, basically, king, talk to the hand until I'm done. Finish the name of God, and then they can get up and address the king. They were zealously, zealously, fanatically even, 
copying these texts over and over. And then there was the Masoretic period. That was the different Jewish period from 5th century AD for about 500 years to the 10th century AD. They even added vowel points to help us understand how to pronounce the Hebrew language because the Hebrew language is all consonants. There's no vowels in it. But the Masoretes added some vowels to help us understand how to pronounce some of these Hebrew words as well. And most of our uh, New King James versions and so forth are based on that Masoretic text. In the New Testament, Greek was the original language, not Hebrew. Greek was the original language of the New Testament. Early Christians began transmitting and copying. Early monks, even the church fathers, quoted the Bible prolifically. They have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, even thousands of Bible quotes in their writings. Over 36,000 quotes by just the early church fathers in the first six centuries of the church. Can you believe that? If we lost all these manuscripts, like the one you see below here, if we lose all the, the New Testament manuscripts, you can take the writings of the church fathers alone and nearly reconstruct the New Testament. It is that prolific. They love their scripture. They quoted their scripture. And then after the transmission or the copying process began the translation of the text. That's rendering the words like Hebrew we have here into Egyptian or uh, into German or into English. Whenever you move from one language to another language, it's called translation. Whenever you're copying it in the same language, it's always called transmission. Okay? So if it goes from Greek and Hebrew to English, what is it? It's a translation. It's a translation. Good. Notice the first step on our journey to, to receiving this English Bible was the first major translation of the Old Testament. It was called the Septuagint. They designate that by LXX, the Roman numeral 70, because 70 scholars approximately were working on this project to take the Hebrew text and put it into Greek. Okay, so a Septuagint is taking the Hebrew text, translating it into the Greek, and that would eventually be the Bible of Jesus. That's what the disciples would use. But it's the most often quoted in the New Testament is the Septuagint. When Jesus or Matthew or Mark quotes an Old Testament passage, most likely it'll be from the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. Why Greek? I thought they were Hebrew. I thought they spoke Aramaic. Well, they probably did, and, they, and we know they did. But Greek was the universal language of the world at that time. That was the common lingua franca of business and commerce. You know, if you're talking about law, it would be more Latin from the Roman period. But Greek was the universal language. You had your mother tongue, whatever that would be, and then you spoke Greek to get along on all fronts when it comes to business, commerce, and so forth. So Greek was important. It's the most often quoted in the New Testament, the Septuagint. The book divisions were introduced into the Septuagint, like First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. And they uh, put those like that for a reason, because they wanted to divide them according to theme, thematic structure. So the theme and the structure and the form that you see in your English Bible today comes from the Septuagint. That's where it originated. The thematic divisions such as law, history, poetry, prophecy, all were introduced during the Septuagint translation about 250 BC. The book titles were introduced like Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Numbers. All those weren't in the original text. They were actually added during the Septuagint translation period in the 3rd century BC. 
The new words such as atonement and law and peace and redemption, all these new words were actually brought to us through the Greek language. And they were there to clarify the Hebrew words that they were translating from. It was just an amazing feat of translation. And thank God they did this because there was a great need. There was a great need. This indispensable influence of the Septuagint is seen in the early church. Both the disciples, the apostles, Jesus himself. As I said, it was their Bible. The Greek language clarified. This is the great influence. It helped clarify the Hebrew manuscripts that they were translating from. Certain words may have been a little fuzzy in certain people's minds. Maybe there was a little debate about certain Hebrew words. Well, how do they solve that? What they would do is they would go into the Greek, and the Greek translation, which was done by Jewish scribes, okay, not by Greeks, but by Jewish scribes, they would use the Greek language that would correspond to the Hebrew language. For example, the word parthenos is a Greek term that was used for the term alma in the Hebrew text. You see, alma in the Hebrew could either mean a young woman, a young unmarried woman, or it can mean a virgin woman. And this is important when it comes to prophecy because what does it say in the book of Isaiah? That the virgin shall conceive, right? Well, what liberal scholars were trying to do is saying, well, the word Alma only means a young woman will conceive, not a virgin. Because a virgin conceiving is impossible. Well, the Jewish scribes, when they translated the Hebrew into the Greek, they used the word Parthenos because Parthenos literally means virgin. It doesn't mean just young unmarried woman. It doesn't mean just uh, something else other than a virgin. So that tells you that even the Jewish people, the scribes themselves, interpreted the Hebrew Alma as meaning a virgin and not just a young unmarried woman. So this translation helped us solve a lot of these disputes. It gave a wonderful, fuller meaning of the Hebrew written as written by the Jewish scribes into Greek, as well as conducive to evangelism. Why evangelism? Because everybody spoke Greek. Not everybody spoke Hebrew, did they? It was the Greek text that circulated throughout the civilized world, and everybody could read it. So thank God for that, evangelism, getting people saved. Then there's also, it contributes to helping us understand the form and the structure of the English Bible. Like I said, that Bible that you have in your hand today, all the structure and the divisions and, and so forth are because the Septuagint had them in long before the English Bible came. Now, during these early translations, you have several different translations coming. What you see here is actually a picture of a Coptic text. A Coptic text is Egyptian language, and that was used all the way up until about the 17th century AD. But this text here is much earlier. The Coptic texts are early texts up to about the 7th century. In fact, you could uh, reduce that 17 AD way down a lot earlier. This is just a portion of the Gospel of Luke. It looks a little bit about like uppercase Greek, if you've seen it. Uh, a lot of uh, blocky, full case, no spacing in the letters. But some of the first translations were Coptic. They were Egyptian. Then you had Syriac coming up. This is a Eastern form of Aramaic, the Syriac 2nd through the 11th century AD, you have more of a script style with a little bit of space in between. These earliest translations of the Bible, Gothic, 
you had a Germanic language used by the Goths in the 6th century AD. This is just a little snapshot of Codex Argenteus, which is Matthew 5.9. The little highlighted portion there refers to the word God. Um, this, if you know Greek, you will see that these letters correspond in visual or appearance to the Greek letters. I mean, they are very close, but they're subtly nuanced to their, uh, ultimately, their linguistic uh, forms in Gothic, more of a Germanic language. And then something big happened. By 405, the, one of the biggest translations besides the Septuagint is the Latin Vulgate. How many of you have heard of the Latin Vulgate Bible? Okay, good. Latin Vulgate Bible was a revision of the old Latin Bible. It was commissioned by Pope Damasus I in 382. And Jerome, now his real name is Eusebius Hieronymus. You don't want to pronounce that five times backwards. I'm glad it was Jerome, aren't you? I am. Eusebius, or Jerome, in 405, finished the updating and translation from the Old Latin and the original languages into Latin. They call it the Vulgate because Vulgate means common, to the common Latin. More people uh, could read that, in other words. And ultimately, uh, when this project was finished, the Roman Catholics used this Latin Vulgate Bible for the next 1,000 years, all the way through up until about 1546 at the Council of Trent. The Latin Vulgate was the Bible of the Catholic Church and at 1546, at that Council of Trent, they wanted to uh, make sure that this was, they, people knew that this was the common Latin. Now, the interesting part is we know that kind of Latin as a spoken language is kind of dead today. It's more of a research language or a law, law or legal, legal language. Um, but this is important because the priests would know the Latin. You see, the priests would know the Latin in the Roman Catholic Church, Therefore, the common people would not. And so they would have to go to the priest. They would have to go to the clergy, go to the church and say, what does this verse mean? What, what is this? What is this? Um, what does the Bible say? Well, we know all kinds of abuses that resulted when people don't have the Bible in their own language. Thank God that 2,800 translations have taken place today. 2,800 languages of the world, they have the Bible. There's about 2,800 more languages that need the Bible. So if you want to become a Bible translator, go for it. It'd be great. Learn the languages, learn how to translate. Some people live with the indigenous peoples for a long period of time, and they ultimately have uh, a Bible in their language. Jerome spent 15 years translating from the Hebrew and the Greek into the Latin Vulgate and consulting the Old Latin. It replaced the Old Latin text by the 6th or 7th century AD. New words emerged, such as Calvary and justification, testament, conversion, congregation, exhortation, sanctification, all these new words that the Latin gave us, especially the law language and the military language, even Calvary, Calvary Chapel. Calvaria means skull. You go to Skull Chapel. Isn't that interesting? You have a little skull in the front there. So when you meet up with some bikers or something, you say, I go to Skull Chapel, man. You want to go? <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> the first book of importance printed by the Gutenberg Press in 1456. Okay, what an amazing feat that was. That's still on display today. That first book of importance, that Gutenberg Bible, was the Latin Vulgate. 
you know, so the translation continues into Latin. But by the 6th century AD, the gospel and missionaries started to encroach into Europe. And where the gospel goes, what do you think's got to follow? What do you think's got to follow the gospel? The scriptures, okay? It went to England by the 7th century. An individual named Cademan translates parts of the Latin Bible, that Latin Vulgate, into English. This is the first time we see an English Bible come to surface. And though it was a spotty translation and it was not complete, both Old and New Testaments, it's still by the 7th century. This is the same time as what major religion creeping up? Anybody know? What major religion of the world was creeping up around the 7th century? Islam. Islam is creeping up. Do you think God is going to leave himself without a voice in the Middle East or in the Europe? No. Islam would soon spread fast, but the word of God would be right there along for the people to compare with. By the 8th century, Bede, the great churchman, translates the Gospels into English from Latin. So you have the Gospels now in English by the 8th century. And then by the 9th century, Alfred the Great translated the Ten Commandments and the Psalms into English, which he incorporated into many of his laws. So you have 7th, 8th, 9th, and this English translation is starting to gain steam, but we don't have anything complete yet. We just don't have a full Old or New Testament done. That wouldn't be complete until John Wycliffe. How many of you have heard of John Wycliffe? What an amazing scholar. He's an Oxford scholar, 1329 to 1384. That 14th century was quite an amazing century to live. He was equipped in both Hebrew and Greek and Latin. He was just like a linguistic genius. And what he did is he translated the Bible from the Latin to the English language. The first English Bible was now in existence. It's called the Wycliffe Bible. The first English Bible. By the 14th century, people could read. Scholars could read that scriptures in the English language. But nevertheless, it was from the Latin. It wasn't from the original languages. What were the original languages? Hebrew and Greek were the original languages. He did it from Latin. So notice that he completed the New Testament in the late 14th century by 1380 and the Old Testament by 1382 with the help of his associates, uh, Miles Coverdale or, or John Hereford and, and some others. His assistant, John Purvey and company, updated the Wycliffe Bible in 1388 and 1395. So the Wycliffe Bible got us a good head start. Europe was starting to see on a limited basis the scriptures in the English language. Now, Wycliffe was an amazing man. Uh, they didn't treat him right. They condemned him as a heretic for doing this translation. You know, remember, the church wanted control. The leadership, the kings and queens wanted control. And how do they do that? Well, you have a Bible that nobody can read, Latin. Okay? And that way they have to come to you for explanation and so forth. Soon after Wycliffe's translation, he organized the Lollards. Now, what are the Lollards? The Lollards are individuals who would go into the countryside and talk to people about the gospel and about the word of God. They would have these little itinerant training sessions, if you would, little preaching groups that would go out. And Wycliffe knew that when he went out with this message, that his translation would be more well-received the more the people were equipped and the more they were educated. Okay? Now, remember, Martin Luther did the same thing. When he translated the Bible into German in 1522, he felt that he could win the Reformation, the Protestant versus 
Catholic battle if the people had the scriptures in their own language. It would vindicate what Luther was saying, he felt. Well, the same is true here with Wycliffe. He was condemned, ultimately, as a heretic after his death, and his bones were dug up and burned. I mean, man, they took that stuff seriously, didn't they? In 1388, John Purvey, his assistant, produced a revision of the Wycliffe Bible, which eventually replaced Wycliffe's original Bible. So notice that God raises up people, he gets the job done, and he continues the process. With continuing, William Tyndale is a giant name. How many of you have heard of William Tyndale? In fact, there's a Tyndale school here in the United States as well. William Tyndale was another Oxford University scholar, great with languages. He translated the Bible from the original languages into English. Now, for the first time, we have Hebrew and Greek now into the English language under Tyndale and his Tyndale Bible. This was immense because the Latin Vulgate had a grip on authority at that point because it was from the original languages. It wasn't Latin to English. It was Hebrew, Greek to Latin. But now, the English basis is Hebrew and Greek. So that put the English Bible on more of an equal footing with the Latin Bible, okay, with authority reasons because it goes back to the original languages. Notice what Tyndale says. I love this. You can see his attitude in this quote. If God spare my life, ere many years, I will cause a boy that drives a plow in the field shall know more about the scripture than you do. Okay, he's talking about his enemies here who wanted to snuff out his translations. He wanted to equip people. He wanted even the people who, who were farmers to know and to understand what the scripture had to say. That was his mission. And thank God he had that mission. Well, ultimately, Tyndale criticized the Catholic authority. He ultimately had to flee to Germany where he probably met Martin Luther. You've heard of Martin Luther, the great reformer in Germany at the time. He said, the just shall live by faith, right? By grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. That was the heart cry of the Reformation. Sola fide, soli gracias, and sola Christus. Okay? Faith alone, Christ alone, yeah, by grace alone. By 1525, Tyndale completed the New Testament and began smuggling it into England. He smuggled over 15,000 copies of his Bible into England. But do you think that would go unchecked by the authorities? It wouldn't. It wouldn't go unchecked. People will find out. The authorities will find out. Ultimately, the Catholics banned and burned his Bible. Then cast him into prison, where he met Miles Coverdale, who completed the Old Testament by 1537. Ultimately, King Henry VIII accepted the Bible by about that same time. So you have this general acceptance of the English translation was starting to take over that lock on authority that the Latin Vulgate with the Roman Catholic Church had for so long. The Great Bible was then produced. Miles Coverdale um, prepared the Great Bible, and it was based on the Coverdale and the Matthews Bible. Matthews and, Coverdale, uh, Matthews and uh, John Rogers are the same individual, so if you go read about them, just know that they're the same. Now, the Great Bible was called great due to its size and costliness. It cost a lot of money for anybody to have, and it was too big. It was like one of your coffee table Bible, you know, it was big old... You know, bring that to church. I mean, just think, you're going to get a few looks, right? People are going to start calling you a Pharisee or whatever it might be. Hey, look at that guy. He thinks he's all spiritual. 
put the thing down, or especially if you bring the scroll right here to, to, to church. You know, you say, where are we at, Genesis? Okay. But this size and costliness really limited circulation. And initially, it was first known as the authorized edition. It was endorsed by King Henry VIII, but later he restricted it, ultimately. It was just impractical, too expensive, too big, and it fell out of favor. Then the Geneva Bible surfaced. In the 1500s, Matthews was executed under, I should say, under Mary Tudor's reign. That's, you know, Bloody Mary, Mary Tudor. Uh, Many others fled to Geneva. Okay, Geneva was kind of like a safe spot for exiles or people fleeing persecution. Most of the Protestants, like John Calvin and William Whittingham and and others uh, would flee there. And what they would do, the scholars would flee, and then they would get together, and they'd start a translation project. And uh, the Geneva Bible was one of those projects. But unfortunately, um, there was a problem with the Bible because it had John Calvin's notes in it. You know, let's put John Calvin's notes in there. You know, but not everybody's going to be a Calvinist, right? So the Bible had limited circulation and so forth. So they revised the great Bible. They went back to the big and costly Bible. They revised that, and then they called it the Bishop's Bible to try to make it a little more user-friendly and cost-effective in size and so forth. And that continued. The Bishop's Bible continued until the King James Version was done in the 1600s. Hence, the King James Version was completed by 1611, an English translation based on about a half a dozen Greek manuscripts from Stephanus and Erasmus, Uh, It was an amazing translation. The command of the English language was so high. Um, I still use it. I use it for memorizing scripture because it has a rhyme and a cadence to it. It's almost like a melodic song. Anybody use the King James Version here, either old or new? Um, NASB and NIV and all the other Bibles, uh, they still contain, you know, they have the word of God. You can memorize from them too, just me personally. It just has kind of like a song-like cadence to it. It helps me remember a bit more. But the King James translation was fantastic. James the sixth is the same person as James the first of Scotland. Remember that. So when you see James the sixth and James the first, they're the same people. They, he commissioned the work at the request of John Reynolds in 1604 at the Hampton Court Conference. So you have Reynolds going to the king and basically saying, hey king, we need a Bible, an authorized, received, authoritative text. And the king agreed with Reynolds. And he wanted to commission the job, so he did. King James called 47 scholars to translate from the original languages, Hebrew and Greek. And they started in 1607 and finished in 1611. So it took them about four or five years to get the job done. I thought they did a a very good job. It ended up replacing the Geneva Bible, and it became, it should be, the most widely read Bible of the 17th and 18th centuries. I mean, just amazing. In fact, it continued on to be the, one of the number one bestsellers for many years after that. I think today the NIV has overtaken the King James as the, the number one bestselling Bible. Uh, but the King James Version was an authoritative and excellent translation. Richard Bancroft was really in charge of overseeing this translation from the original languages into the English Bible. Um, he did a fantastic job. The New Testament translation was based on Greek texts from two people. Erasmus and Stephanus. Okay, these guys had produced Greek text based on other manuscripts that they used to compile the King James Version into English. 
The Old Testament translation was based on the Masoretic text. Now remember, what did the Masoretes do to the Hebrew text? They added the vowels, right? So the New King James, the Old King James, was based on that uh, particular Hebrew text. It ended up replacing the Geneva Bible. So uh, the King James had wide circulation and so forth, but it didn't stop there. Though we have the Bible in English, new manuscripts discoveries prompt new translations. You know, 1611 to 2019, where we're at today, that's a lot of years. And during that time period, we have found all kinds of manuscripts, like the one you're seeing here. We found the Dead Sea Scrolls. You know, all books of the Old Testament were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls except Esther, okay, that date back to the 3rd century B.C. They were found at Qumran, off the shores of the Dead Sea. You think Bible scholars are going to want to go back and revisit what those manuscripts say versus what the English Bible says? Well, let me give you a hint. They went to go examine the Dead Sea Scrolls. All the scholars, uh, about as many as in this room, were there along tables, and they had manuscripts laid out like this one here. And the Dead Sea Scroll scholars began looking at the words, analyzing the texts. And you know what? The crowd got smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Why do you think that was? Because it said the exact same thing our English Bible says today. They got bored. They thought they were going to find some juicy contradictions, some juicy uh, you know, conflicts in the text. Ultimately, they had to bring a whole other batch of scholars and to finish the job and so forth. But this was an amazing, amazing find, the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Codex Sinaiticus is our earliest complete Bible that dates to 325, written in Greek. This is another manuscript that prompted new translations. The Codex Vaticanus, found at the Vatican Library, dates to about 350 AD. That's both Greek, Old, and New Testament. So the Septuagint is included with it. The Codex Alexandrinus, the 15th century Greek manuscript, or the Chester Beatty Papyrus, the John Rylands fragment. In fact, this fragment right here is the oldest New Testament fragment that we have in our possession today. It dates to 125 AD. It's written in Greek. It's written on papyri, a little plant perishable uh, in unkeal uppercase Greek lettering. And it is only about four inches tall. And it's a portion of John chapter 18, 31 through 33. Anybody know what, what that passage talks about by memory? Anything? Crucifixion narrative, right? The trial, right? What is truth, Pilate asks. It's right there in that little, that little piece of fragment there. But these new manuscript discoveries prompt new translations. So you have the NASB come out. You have the NIV come out. You have the ESV come out. Um, the NAB and so forth, the living translation. It's because we found a cachet of manuscripts. Do you know how many manuscripts we have today? We have so many, we don't know what to do with them all. They are like piling to the ceiling. All right, we have over 60,000 Old and New Testament manuscripts put together. We have over 5,800 Greek New Testament alone manuscripts. We have over 30 to 40,000 Old Testament either fragments, uh, manuscripts, or codices. Codices are just bound with a spine manuscript, a codex. Okay? We have so many manuscripts, and thank God we do, because the more manuscripts, the better that we can compare them and put them together and make them into a reflection of the original. See, we don't have the originals. The, pens, the, the, the documents penned from the apostles' hands. 
We don't have them. They were lost or destroyed, but we have copies of them. And those copies made copies and copies and copies and copies, and they just start building up. We as Christians have the number one literary support for the New Testament of any other ancient document. Do you know that? You're number one. You're number one. Not Homer's Iliad, not Herodotus, not Thucydides, not Plato or Aristotle. Yes, we have a few of those manuscripts, but nothing compares to the stacks and stacks of manuscripts we have to reconstruct what the original says. That way you can go home today at the end of this conference and say, I am confident I know what that original document said. Why? Because you have so many excellent copies. So many excellent copies. Written by people who took their jobs seriously. Just amazing. So I want to summarize what the lecture entailed today. There's 12 points. So we're going to go back through. The road to the English Bible, remember, in 12 points. The first was the original scriptures were written, 1500 to 100 AD, about a 15 to 1600 year period. Job could have been written a little earlier. Then Jewish scribes began copying, transmitting the text over and over through the years, through the centuries. The first major translation, point three here, is the Septuagint, the Hebrew translated into Greek. Why? Because in Alexandria, Egypt, there were over a million Greek-speaking Jews there. Greek-speaking Jews wanted the scriptures in Greek. So that's why it was done in Egypt, this whole translation of the Septuagint. It was done in Egypt. Some say it was on the island of Pharos off the coast of Egypt, around 250 B.C. The fourth point is the New Testament was completed and copied by Christians and monks and scholars and so forth all the way through. It was done by the first century, end of the first century A.D., Fifth point is that early translations of the Bible, such as Coptic, Gothic, Syriac, Latin, etc., were already being done from the original languages into other languages. This is in the first seven centuries of the church. The Latin Vulgate was completed by Jerome in 405, where they took the original languages and the Old Latin, put it into the Latin Vulgate Bible. Then seventh, there were some spotty translation going on by Cademan, Beattie, and Alfred the Great into English. And then Wycliffe, the Oxford scholar, came along and translated the Latin Bible into English for English speakers in England during the 1300s. Then Tyndale came along. He went all the way back to what? The original languages. Original languages. Translated the Bible into English by the 1500s. And then Coverdale, Matthews, the Great Bible, Geneva Bible, the Bishop's Bible were all done during this time period to uh, spring off of those first English translations. The King James Version eventually would be commissioned in 1607, completed in 1611. And then finally, new manuscript discoveries prompt more English Bible translations. The Dead Sea Scrolls, the New Testament manuscripts, and so forth. So, you should know how you got your English Bible today. There's a lot that happened in between these points, believe me. But these are the main points. These are the succinct main points that you can take knowing that people worked hard, that God not only inspired the Word of God, but what did He do? He preserved the Word of God. If God inspires something, doesn't it make sense that He would preserve it? Well, He did. He did it through faithful 
individuals who copied the manuscripts and preserved them. Just amazing. Just amazing. Now, before we open it up for about 10 minutes of Q&A, I think that's what we uh, had planned today, I want to recommend to you a few books. Um, the first one is The Popular Handbook of Archaeology in the Bible. It was written by Dr. Norman Geisler and myself together as a joint project. This will contain about how we got our Bible, how we uh, discover different artifacts, and how it relates to the biblical text, historically speaking. Uh, this, we've, we've brought all these resources here for you. Feel free to pick one up. Um, excellent handbook of archaeology in the Bible. And then there's a popular encyclopedia of church history that helps you fill in the blanks of many of the questions you might be having about any of the lectures here today. This is, uh, we're giving this away for like $10. Um, this is uh, retails at 27 So $10 for you, the popular encyclopedia of church history. Excellent. Um, <clears throat> here's a book that just came out about three weeks ago. It's called The Harvest Handbook of apologetics. And it, we have a whole section in here about the Bible. Is the Bible inspired? How do we know it's reliable? Does archaeology support the Bible? And so forth. Uh, and along with many other 75 apologetic questions asking about the Christian faith, the Christian worldview, and the Bible. The Harvest Handbook of Apologetics. And then you have this, this classic, I almost want to say this is a classic, Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell and Sean McDowell. Um, I wrote the chapter in this book on archaeology and Old Testament criticism in here. We just recently updated the book, so this is revised, expanded. Um, just two, a year and a half, two years ago, we updated this. And this we're giving at a discounted price as well. It's great, great stuff. Anybody have this book already, maybe in two volumes or one volume? Get it updated because a lot have changed in the archaeological world and so forth. And this is a great updated edition as well. So with that, let's take a few questions. Is, is, is there questions came through? Any questions? Uh, Pastor, you had? Um, if you have a question, just uh, raise your hand. Uh, and uh, we have a couple mics, and we'll come to you, and you meet us up at the aisle. <laughs> yes, um, the Discovery Channel's. They got the Jesus Seminar people on there, and they're uh, saying the Latin Church Fathers suppressed and wrote, rewrote the scriptures to fit the narrative. But that's an era out of the like 1800s. I know that. So, but could you address how that's this can't be? Yeah. How did the Latin Church Fathers did they simply rewrite the scriptures to fit their theological needs or purposes in the church at the time? The answer is no, <laughs> they didn't. Why, how do we know that? Well, because we have earlier manuscripts than the Latin fathers that say essentially the same thing as the Latin fathers. Now, I'm not saying that the Latin fathers are inerrant. I'm not saying that they are right on every issue because they're not inspired scripture, but there is no evidence to believe that Latin fathers rewrote the scriptures. Now, there were some fathers that were a little off, you know, origin, for example, he was a little off. I call him the origin of all heresies, even though his name was origin. But um, I, I say that facetiously. But, you know, origin has some good things to say, too. So it's very spotty. You have to go from father to father to see what they're saying. But there was no general or widespread changes. 
but they did write to their theological purposes, didn't they? Didn't they have needs in their local churches? Didn't they have needs in their, their region or their area? So yes, sometimes the church fathers would write letters or tomes to address those theological needs. But there's no evidence that the Bible was ever changed because these fathers wrote to their theological needs of their region. Okay? It was, there's evidence of the Latin fathers taking the Bible and applying it to the purposes of their needs and so forth. But we don't have anything like that. In fact, it's just the opposite. Church fathers took very good care of the Bible. All the books of the Bible were quoted by 110 AD by only three church fathers. Do you think the church fathers love their scriptures? They did. They did. So I did my master's dissertation on um, the Jesus Seminar. And anything they say, you need to look up. Okay? They will just make claims and they won't support it. They'll just give you like a soundbite or a talking point to justify it. And that's not the case. They even wrote a book called The Five Gospels. And they added the Gospel of Thomas to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You know, that's how, how radical they are. They're, they're not liberal. They are ultra-radically liberal. Okay, to the point where they're sitting around a table and throwing in colored beads into a basket to vote on whether Jesus really said the words in red in certain Gospels. Well, they found out that 98% of the words in red that you and I read on Sunday was not spoken by Jesus. Only 2% of the words in red were spoken by Jesus. How do they determine that? Well, they create these artificial criteria and the scripture has to fit their artificial criteria, okay? And if it doesn't, they vote no. They vote with a black, black bead is he definitely didn't say it. A gray bead, he probably didn't say it. A pink bead, he might have said it. A red bead, he said it. 2% were red, he said it. It's pretty bad, yeah. There's no evidence for it. Any questions over here? Right over here. Uh, we'll hold the mics because we've got to hold them a certain way so that uh, we don't get feedback. You left out the Texas receptor te uh, text. Yes. And I don't know if you're going to do that on the second half, but I was also taught that the Alexandrian text and the Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus are all corrupt texts mm. as compared to the Texas receptor text which was written, you know, by the true Christians that are in the book of Acts. Yeah. So I, I'm wondering what your opinion on that is. Oh. They leave things out, you know, when your footnotes on it. And that's what I was taught in yeah. Vulgate and all that. There's also Gnosticism going on in uh, Alexandria. So mm -hmm. I'm wondering what your opinion on that is, too. That's a good point. That, that question often comes up, you know, the Alexandrian text. Uh, type, which is Codex Sinaiticus, Codex Vaticanus, and some of the earlier uncial uppercase manuscripts. And Gnosticism was prevalent in the area of Egypt during the time of a lot of the translation of these manuscripts. But, but not to fear. Number one, um, the texts, no two manuscripts are identical. Remember that. These were written by human beings not under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit per se, but they were right. Some got tired, some made mistakes, some misspelled names, some of the word orders changed. Um, some wrote little things into the margin to remind themselves to come back to it later or put something in a bracket on the side. So remember, there's no two manuscripts that are the same. 
And some people, for that reason, have considered the Bible or these manuscripts from that time period as corrupt. Well, there's no two manuscripts the same from the very first manuscript all the way to the last one that we have. They're all unique in and of themselves. Scribes get tired. They make mistakes. But all these mistakes that you see, and sometimes they call it corruption. That's kind of like the theological term, the corruption of the text. It doesn't mean that the text was like deliberately changed to say something other than it originally said. It just means that in one manuscript, it may say this a certain way. And in another manuscript, it may have some subtle nuances of difference of how they say it. And they call that, with, I like to use the term variant, because a variant is not an error per se. It's just a difference in between two texts or two text families. So when we say there is corruption in the text, we don't mean that there's historical error or that people intentionally went into the text and wrote a whole different narrative in the Gospels than what you're seeing today. What we mean by corruption of the text is the differences, which I like to call variant. Now, with that said, the manuscripts that we have from the beginning to the end all essentially say the same thing. The voice of God is being reflected in these manuscripts. If you lose the voice of God, you've lost the word of God. So the words themselves can change, but the meaning must stay the same. Okay, if you have the meaning, we call that vox, ipsissima vox in the Latin. It means the very same meaning. Okay, for example, if I put up a screenshot here and you were missing on one of these sentences here, maybe four or five letters of the sentence that I put up here for you, you could probably, I bet you get 100% of the meaning still. You know, if the, on the first sentence under number seven, if the word E was missing under Cademan and the word R was Alfred the Great was missing and the word G or the letter G in English was missing, you would still be able to make out 100% of the meaning of that sentence, though you wouldn't have 100% of the words fully intact. That's what our manuscripts look like. That's what our manuscripts look like. Now to the Gnosticism issue of Alexandria. Remember, the church was growing and spreading at a time when Gnostic philosophy, which challenged the church greatly, was occurring in Egypt. And the church fathers had to figure out a way to respond to those Gnostic attacks. And oftentimes, the church fathers would use philosophy in order to defend the faith against these Gnostics. Remember, we're all products of our culture in a certain way, one way or another. There's a contributing factor that our culture brings to whether our arguments, our education, our upbringing, or whatever it might be. And the church fathers often used much of the philosophical jargon and the language of the day to refute the heretics who are trying to wipe out the word of God. So I think the church fathers have gotten a bad rap on that. I don't think there's anything sinister in terms of Gnosticism and the manuscripts that came from Egypt and so forth, because we can compare them to the later manuscripts that come from a total different part of the world. They're, they're, they're genuine. They're authentic. They're good. In fact, many scholars say that 99.8% of all of our manuscripts are identical. It's that little slip of the pin stuff doesn't change any major doctrine, doesn't cause any confusion as to the message of the text. Um, so rest easy. There's no other document on the, on the planet or on the face of the earth that does what your biblical manuscripts can do. Yeah. Good. Any more questions? 
close are we with our Bible uh, to the so- original sources compared to other ancient books? Oh, okay. That's a great question. How close, let's say, we'll take the New Testament. How close is the New Testament to the originals than other ancient books, such as Homer, his Iliad, or Thucydides, Herodotus, Plato, Aristotle, these other ancient works? You're number one, like I said before. Let me give you an idea. That little manuscript I showed you, that little fragment of the John Rylands fragment, the little four-inch tall one, that is only 30 years removed from the Gospel of John's original penning. It dates to 125. John was probably pinned by the end of the first century, so by 95, John was done. That's only 30 years for an ancient document to have its first manuscript copy or a portion of it connected to that early port. That is, that is amazing. That is amazing. The Codex Sinaiticus, the Codex Vaticanus, are only about 250 years removed from the original writing of the Bible because they date to 350 and 325. And the Bible was finished by, let's say, 100. By 95, John was the last book. That's only about 250, 225, 225 years. That is amazing. But then when you go to Plato, Aristotle, Thucydides, do you know how much gap between the original and the first manuscript copy they have? In some cases, it's 1,500-year difference. That's a big time gap between the two, isn't it? The closest of the ancient world besides the Bible is Homer's Iliad at about 500 years. So Homer's Iliad is about a 500-year span, and everybody thinks Homer's Iliad is very authentic and very reliable in what it originally said. Well, if that's the case, well, so much more the New Testament. So if you throw out the New Testament in your university classrooms today, you also got to throw out all of classic literature too. And that's the price they're not willing to take. They're going to have to stick. They're going to be, they're going to be busy with us for a while. Okay? But we have the tightest time gaps between the original and our first copies. There's nobody even close. Homer's the next closest, 500 years. We're th- we're, just to put an estimate, we're 30 years to 250 years time gap between the original for ancient literature, and ancient literature is 300 A.D. and earlier, that is like overnight to an ancient historian. It's just overnight. Because the wider the time gap between the original and the first copy, what happens? You question what happened in this thousand-year gap between the original and the first copy. You know, embellishment, myth, alterations could have crept in. Well, we now know from the Dead Sea Scrolls that go back to the 3rd century B.C., well, the end of the Bible was when? Four, 400 B.C., Malachi. There's only a 100-year difference between the copies and the end of the Old Testament's writing at 400 B.C., Malachi. Okay, that is really tight. And that's why a lot of those scholars quit when they started translating because they had been hammering us before the Dead Sea Scrolls because there was such a big gap. But now we have the Dead Sea Scrolls. That argument has completely gone away. It's vanished. Thank God. God is good. There's <clears throat> uh, a couple question. more questions down here. For the purpose of studying the Bible, which translation would you recommend? Mm. You know what? Yeah. You know, I would say all, they're all good. NASB translation, the NIV, the, the King James Version, uh, the, the, you know, the Living Translation. You're asking... Is it thought for thought? If it's a thought for thought translation, you're going to get more of a loose translation. It's the concepts that come across. 
if you want more of a literal word-for-word translation, probably the NASB is probably the closest to the Greek text that you could probably get, but it reads a little bit wooden. Okay, I prefer the King James. When I go to deal with the cults, like Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons, I take an NASB. Okay, but when I want to memorize scripture, I go to my new King James Version. So feel free to use them all. Now, there are some you don't want to use, obviously. Don't use the New World Translation of the Bible. That's the Jehovah's Witness Bible. <laughs> there is definitely some significant changes of meaning in it. Okay, so it might, the question better might be, which one do you not want to use? Uh, there's probably a handful that you don't want to use. New World Translation is one of them. But it depends on the person's uh, maturity in the Christian faith. You know, if they're just starting out, maybe more of a thought-for-thought translation might, might be better. Uh, if they want to memorize scripture, maybe the New King James. If the, it depends what they're going to do with it and what kind of person they are. If they have a high level of reading, uh, perhaps maybe an NASB might be better for them. So it's kind of like whatever you want. The voice of God is coming through. Yeah. Yeah, good question. Any more questions? Uh-huh. What's, their, what's their main beef? Yeah, what's their main beef? Um, the King James-only crowd, and I don't want to misrepresent, misrepresent anybody, but they believe that the, the New King James Version, or the King James Version in general, is lowered from heaven on a string. Okay, it's kind of like, came right from heaven to you. Ah, uh, you know, I don't have the music to play for you, but that's basically what has happened. Um, they're saying that the character, many, in many respects, the character of the people involved in the translation was superior. They had a high command of the English language, which they did. They had good men, 47 scholars, translating this, this concept. However, on the other side of things, the King James Version it was only based on about six or seven manuscripts, half a dozen. Today's modern versions are based on hundreds of manuscripts. So the support, I would say, would be greater for the newer translations rather than just saying King James Version, King James Version. Because you go to the King James Version, for example, in 1 John 5, 7, they have what you call in theological parlance a Yohanin comma. It's called Yohanin comma. Half the verse isn't even in the Bible. It just appears in the 16th century. That's the first time it appears anywhere is right there. So you can go through little things like that with the King James Version. So I would say it's not lowered from heaven on a string, but it is lowered from heaven on a string if you want to get God's voice. God's voice is still there. Um, but I wouldn't say King James only, King James only. All the rest are anathema, heretical, and they don't have the voice of God. That is incorrect. Um, altered or changed words. Some serious issues in terms of like the enemy creeping in. Creeping in, yeah. And changing. Yeah. Like like, like there's been the New New World Order Bibles, I call it. Yeah, the New World Order Bible. I get get you. Yeah, no, that's the argument coming from the group, but they can't really sustain it because the King James Version is based on a certain body of manuscripts, whereas the other versions are based on another body of manuscripts, and we would expect there to be subtle differences. Now, when you open your Bible and compare the New King James to, let's say, the NIV or the NASB or whatever it might be, 
is there little stars there, little footnotes, little stars, not in the earlier manuscripts. This one's in the later manuscripts. You know, you have all these little notes and diacritical remarks in there. That's what you want to make sure your Bible has. You know, so you can make a decision on how you want to read this as singular or plural. You know, the earlier manuscripts have this in it. The later manuscripts don't. The earlier manuscripts don't have the woman caught in adultery in it. The early ones don't. But the later manuscripts have John 7 and the start of John 8, the woman caught, caught in adultery, have it in it. You know, but your Bible will have a footnote right there saying this was not in this body of manuscripts, but it was present in this body of manuscripts. Now, is there anything that contradicts the other scriptures from the woman caught in adultery? I would say no. You can treat it as the word of God. It measures up. It's consistent. But it may not have been part of the original Bible. But it may be still, nevertheless, a true story that Jesus participated in. That really happened, but it just wasn't in the Bible. You see, it may be true still. So the key is, does it contradict other passages of Scripture? And if it does, then we've got a problem. But if it doesn't, then you're okay. Just make sure you have your diacritical remarks, that you can do your own research on it. Because we're dealing with ancient documents that no two are alike. So we can't, I don't think we should be thinking about it so rigidly in that sense. I think all the Bibles have the voice of God in it. Great question. like it. Thank you. Ready for a break. Um, just to let you guys know, just to let you guys know, if, if you, you see somebody with a name tag, they're here to serve you. If you have any questions or anything like that, um, how are you doing? Good. Good. Doing Good. great. Anything before we take a break? No, God bless you guys. Um, Keep reading the word of God. Let's bow in prayer and we'll dismiss. Lord, thank you again so much. We just ask you to uh, bless our Bible reading, our Bible study, our Bible knowledge, Lord. Help us today absorb information and to uh, think about these things as we leave today, Lord. Father, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.